Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail. I'm so glad to be back here with my co-commissar, Jason. Hey, Jason. Hey, Tim. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Uh, well, indeed. Well, indeed. That is great. It's going to be revolutionary today as we skim through the topics that matter to our listeners, news and culture, as two Christian guys. I just said that completely backwards to make it more interesting. Yeah, that, that'll be fun to edit later on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to make sure everyone knows our motto. Uh, and if you know, I say it every time, we can't test them. So, you know. Uh, yeah, there's no quiz questions here. <laughs> yeah, well, no quiz questions, no tests, and no playoffs. But there are playoffs happening because it's March. And I am totally clueless about them. But maybe you would like to fill everybody in, Jason. Yeah, the NCAA men's basketball tournament is taking place. This is... As we are recording, this is the first weekend of the tournament. Uh, typically starts on Thursday. The aficionados know that. The the first round games are Thursday and, and Friday. And then the second round games are Saturday and Sunday, respectively, depending on which day you played first. So we have tremendous, tremendous storylines going on um, in the tournament. As of this recording... Uh, number one seed Baylor um, has just been knocked off uh, by North Carolina, the eight seed in that region. I don't even know the region. I'll have to look that up. I think it's the West region. But I I think uh, North Carolina, traditional power, rival to Duke, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, is vastly underseeded. But they came up in a second-round game playing very, very well, as they have the last few weeks. Uh, and they were up, they were up by 25 on Baylor with 10 minutes to play. Baylor stormed all the way back, had tied the game at 80, and they went to overtime. And then Carolina just wore them out in overtime. So it uh, it ended 93 to 86, I believe. And uh, yeah, Baylor just ran out of gas. You you make a 25 point comeback in 10 minutes. Uh, you either you got to either finish off that giant or you're going to lose, um, and that's kind of what happened. They ran out of gas in overtime, so that's one of the big storylines that North Carolina vastly underseeded moving on to the Sweet 16. Um, and then the other storyline is the great Mike Shashevsky for Duke, Coach K. Uh, this he's completing his 42nd season at Duke. As the winning, winningest basketball coach of all time, men or women. Um, and he is one win away from 1,200 as a coach. And as soon as Duke is done in this tournament, either as the champion or having lost, uh, that will be it for Coach K. He is now 75 years old, um, five national titles, numerous coming very close, and numerous NBA lottery picks and successful professionals went through Duke. Um, obviously winning as coach of all time. Three Olympic gold medals for the United States as the head coach. Started his coaching career at Army where he played for Bob Knight, who at one time was the winningest coach of all time. Um, and then in 1980, the year I was born, he took the job at Duke. Uh, and so this is the end. This is the end of his career. His wife, Mickey, has been Duke's team mom since 1969 or so. Uh, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. Um, maybe it does. Maybe she was there early for some reason. But anyway, uh, the Krzyzewskis are going away, at least from their positions, uh, as it were. And there's another... Uh, there's another delightful story about Coach K. Uh, in 1980, there was um, a young man, uh, a guy with Down syndrome, and he was a huge fan of the Duke Blue Devils, and he just wanted a ticket. And I, I'm forgetting the kid's name. I just read the story, and it was reminded, it was brought to my mind again. He was a big fan of of the Duke Blue Devils, so his mom wrote to Coach K, told the story, and Coach K said, well, he can sit right behind me, and this is 1980. And so this man 
would come and sit right behind Coach K on the bench. Um, and this was the first year, because uh, the man died sometime last year. This was the first year uh, that he didn't come uh, and pick up his ticket sitting behind Coach K. And it's one of those personal stories. I think his name was Jerry. And so they asked Coach about Jerry, and Coach said, oh, Jerry's my good friend who's had a lot of challenges. And so I think Jerry's mom and Jerry's friends were very appreciative that, you know, Coach didn't single him out for for pity or awkwardness or weirdness, but just treated him like a friend who loved loved his Blue Devils, which he did. Uh, so those are just some of the stories that, you know, Coach K's career is bringing to a conclusion. Uh, he's a good man, um, a good man that has served the Durham community and and served the university for a long time. He's going to continue to be an ambassador even after he retires as the head coach. Uh, and it's it's just one of our, our best basketball stories. He's an absolute legend, and they're going to send him off while he's still in good health. And I told you, Tim, before we went on the air, you know, he doesn't look like he's 75 years old. Maybe we can put a picture of Coach K in the show notes. Um, but I, I think a lot of the listeners know um, they know of Coach K, so I'm not breaking any news there. He's a young-looking 75, but he probably just 42 years at Duke and five at Army, and it's it's time it's time to take a break. You know, I don't blame him. So th- those are just some of the storylines that we're following in the tournament. Uh, they don't call it Mad- March Madness for no reason. So uh, we'll see how well, it goes. That, that's all very interesting, although I suspect the real reason they call it March Madness is it's madness to be following basketball when baseball has returned. I knew you were going to say that, and I, I generally agree. But, you know, as the watcher of all sports, you know, I'm I'm here for whatever's on, like I said off the air. Yeah, I, I will be totally unsurprised if one day we have a segment on the International Shuffleboard Championships. Oh, yeah, well, that's quite an interesting thing. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> Uh, no, um, as listeners that know the two of us know, Jason uh, helps me to have at least somewhat of a working knowledge of sports outside of the one true sport, which of course is baseball, and the one true team, which is of course the St. Louis Cardinals, because otherwise I'd be just totally clueless. Yeah, at least you got a couple of those one trues right, Tim. There you go. Keep Keep working along those lines. That'd be <laughs> yes, good. Yes, yes. And, and at least, I have to say, madness or no madness, there certainly is happiness, too, since the lockout has ended, and there is actually going to be an opening day here in St. Louis. Yeah, and they're, and they're not going to lose any games. Uh, they, they worked it out. I think that kind of was an empty threat from the owners there uh, to cancel the first two series. Uh, turns out they're just delayed, and they'll sprinkle in a few doubleheaders. And they'll be real doubleheaders too, not those seven inning monstrosities that we were dealing with the last couple of years. So yeah, uh, we, we definitely need to discuss some of the the changes in baseball in the future episode. We have lots of things going on with the restoration of some some old rules like the the doubleheader and extra innings and how that's handled, and then other abominations like the designated hitter. So things to talk about in a future zippy. Yep, sounds good. Well, when it comes to most athletic events, for most of us, we can only watch them. But when it comes to other sorts of games, we can take part in them. And and last time we shared a new sponsor, Biblical.com from FaithTree, which is basically what it sounds like. It's a version of Wordle that draws words from the English Bible. And so if you're looking to extend your Word-a-day craze and do it in a way that also gives you a reason to dig into God's Word while doing so... Biblical is a great way to do that. You guess the word, and then you're told where it is in the Bible. In addition to that, though, I'm really excited today to share that Faith Tree has its second game, which is Anagrammal, and you can play that once a day as well. And like Biblical, it draws words from the English Bible, except it draws seven-letter words rather than five-letter words. 
And each day you receive a word and you're told where it comes from in scripture. And then it's a game to see how many points you can earn by rearranging combinations of the letters in that word into other words uh, that are at least three letters long and no longer than six. So you get five chances and you see how close you can get to the absolute maximum you could do there. So far, I'm only getting orange or yellow, which stinks since I came up with the game, and yet I can't get to green. There's just (laughs) something wrong there, but I guess it assures you that it is fair. And I think it's a fun way to maybe spend a little time. I just, uh, I've always enjoyed anagrams and things of that nature. And I hope that you enjoy it too. You can take a look at it by going to anagrammal.com. That is A-N-A-G-R-A-M-L-E.com. Or you can go to our show notes and have a link if you don't want to try to spell that out. But anagrammal.com, word a day, and you can do that alongside biblical.com for your word fix. Check it out today. Comrade, we've been talking about games, and of course there's lots of fun games out there. What we're talking about next, though, certainly isn't a game, and that's the war in Ukraine. And we talked about this quite a bit in a previous episode, speculating on some of what was going to happen. We've talked also about some of the threats towards Taiwan in the past. And here we are a few weeks ago when we had our last episode, we talked about how it felt like we were on the eve of World War II all over again. And if anything, it feels maybe even more like that now. Um, It's just heartbreaking. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Russia carried through uh, with the invasion. uh, And they haven't been tremendously successful. Uh, They're getting bogged down and you have Lots of abandonment by Russian soldiers. Some some U.S. analysts were saying, uh, as of a couple weeks ago, that the Ukrainians just had to make it a couple more weeks. And that in modern warfare, there's always a pause. And so they felt that the West would be able to supply Ukraine uh, more easily than the Russians would be able to supply themselves. And I think Ukraine has gotten to that point. Um, but this was this was a blatant act of aggression. Uh, against an innocent country and a and a U.S. allied country, at least to some degree, and so um, Russia has been roundly condemned and rightly so, and hopefully they can continue to hold out. And as you said, the Chinese are watching because I think they would they would come to the aid of the Russians if they felt that it was successful. Uh, and they've been warned by the United States not to not to aid the Russians that there would be severe consequences. Whether we can dole those out, uh, who knows? But that is the aspect that brings in Taiwan because they've been threatening Taiwan uh, for quite a long time, and they don't consider Taiwan to be an independent country. Um, so maybe the thought was that they would be emboldened by what the Russians did, and then they would go after uh, ta- either aid the Russians themselves, China, and also go after Taiwan themselves because uh, everybody was worrying about uh, what the Russians had done. So United States, the leaders of the United States, watching very closely. Uh, what the United States will be able to do is debatable um, because of our earlier efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's an interesting question. But it it has one aspect that we were talking about off the air, and I don't mean to chatter away here, but one aspect we were talking about off the air was how quickly NATO came to the aid of Ukraine uh, and the negotiations uh, to get NATO together um, came together well, and the president did well to do that. and we're aiding them uh, monetarily and maybe some other ways as well. We'll see what that pressure can do, that soft power, uh, maybe blending into hard power a little bit. We'll see what they can do, and hopefully the Russians can be stopped. Yeah. I mean, that's isn't that the big question? Can the Russians be stopped? And certainly... As you said, it doesn't seem like it's been a particularly successful war so far. I don't think there'll be any books talking about the brilliance of Russian strategy over the first part of this war. Um, 
it is worrisome because we we know what Putin is capable of as far as just devastation of a land, and um, it certainly appears as the time rolls on when it didn't work out the way he wanted to, and he didn't come in as the victor that was hailed um, by people that were oppressed by his alleged Nazis. Um, it, it seems like scorched earth really is going to be his policy, and, and that's worrisome, I think, uh, because we can provide lots of weapons, but unless we can exhaust the Russian supply of of military uh, tools, and especially missiles and such, Putin can keep on scorching the earth for quite a while if he wishes. I, I think there's a, a real question of how this plays out, and I still remain concerned, as you and I talked about, that this is the first step towards Putin seeking to build a, a restored Russian empire, that I, I don't think if he can succeed in any form of taking Ukraine, that he's going to stop there. And it may start out with um, assembling other countries that have the misfortune of being non-aligned presently, but but he's going to want the prizes as well, countries like Poland and so on. And, and so the longer he's able to go and deplete, yes, his weapons, but also entrench and be better established for further offensives, I think that provides a, a worrisome trend. Um, you and I advocated pretty strongly in the last Zippy, and I did so again in Open for Business, um, I guess the second week of the war, um, the, the need for air support for Ukraine. And I, I, I completely get where our president struggles to decide whether to do that or not. It's, it's a huge step, and I think oftentimes we can kind of make it sound softer than it is because we think, well, we'll just you know say there's no fly zone. And realistically, we know if there is one, there will be fighting between Russians and Americans. The problem is if Putin is going to keep rolling along, and I think it may not be that he can keep rolling along right now, but he can keep rolling along over the course of several years, Thinking back to World War II parallels, we have to remember we can't compress it all into this little package, but that was over the course of years as well. Um, if, if Putin can roll along, the last thing we want to do is allow him to get entrenched in Ukraine. And beyond that, even if Ukraine doesn't strategically make him that much more capable of striking other former Soviet republics, one of the challenges I think that we face that, that's very real it's just the utter genocide we're watching. And we we somehow need to wrestle with exactly what we mean when we say we're going to stand up against genocide, because we currently have the two, what do we want to call them, evil superpowers of the world, such as they exist, uh, Russia and China, each committing World War II-level genocide. And because of the cost of actually opposing them, we're not. And Frankly, that's exactly where we were before the United States entered World War II. I mean, there was, there's a complex grid of things there, but a lot of it was we don't want to go to war. Right. And so we're doing it again, and we condemn our ancestors for not getting involved and in, in opposing the Holocaust. But how much has to happen to the Ukrainian people before we say we really did mean it when we said never again? Right. Uh, and again, President Zelensky of Ukraine brought that up when he addressed the U.S. Congress. He said, you know, uh, never again has to mean something. Yes. I'm paraphrasing. Um, and, I, and I don't think, to be very honest, um, that it has meant enough in the last few years. I think we were, we were slow and we failed on Rwanda. We were slow in the Sudan. We failed there. Um, we're, as you said, we're failing now. Um, but I do think there's a there's a red line. If if he goes into Poland, because I, I saw a news report that they were 40 miles from the border of Poland. If he goes into Poland, then the Western democracies will assemble and we will have a full blown war. Now I know that people are concerned about the the possible use of nuclear weapons by the Russians if the war expands. But I still, I, I'll, be, I'll be the prognosticator here that sounds like I should be in government or something. But I think those are idle threats from Putin. So I think, I think that the threatening use of nuclear weapons will be a sign that Putin is desperate. 
Um, and I don't think he would carry through on those threats. But if he, but if he goes further west, I think the Western world will assemble and we'll have a full, we'll have World War Three. Literally, that's what we'll yeah. have. So um, hopefully, we don't get there. Um, God willing, we don't have any nuclear uh, new use of nuclear weapons. Um, but man, this is this is heavy stuff here. Yeah, there aren't any good options, and I, I think there's some real questions like. What what do we do if he rolls forward, but not immediately into Poland, but he goes to, say, Moldova and another non-NATO nation, another nation that would like to be part of NATO, would like to be part of the EU? What what do we do then? Or, uh, I think it's less likely, but let's say he decides to take Finland, which um, has some historical affinities with Russia. Um, and again, not NATO. Yeah, that was... That happened in World War II as well. Uh, you know, the Germans attacked the Finns, and the Finns held out. Uh, it was during that brutal winter between 1939 and 40. But he conquered the Finns, and then we had to take Finland back as the Allies. And I think, I think honestly, there's some parallels with Chamberlain's mistakes. Uh, you know, Putin went into the Crimea, and we did nothing. They're they're threatening those former republics, as you mentioned, and we haven't done anything. You don't, no offense, and I know there are some Chamberlain uh, revisionists out there trying to re- rehabilitate the British prime minister, but you don't want to be mentioned in the same breath with Neville Chamberlain. And truthfully, on genocide and on aggression right now, uh, the Western leaders are threatening to be absolutely mentioned in the breath with Chamberlain. So uh, that'll be my most hawkish statement on the show this afternoon. Well, I think both of us are are very similar in that we're not necessarily normally hawks. um, But when you have something that looks so much like what we should have learned from history, again, if, if we assume that Putin has any rational approach to this at all, if he can succeed to any level in Ukraine, even if it's simply just wiping out the land and then claiming it as his own, which it's sort of starting to look like he might be willing to do that. If there's any process that he sees unfolding towards a greater Russia, he, he, he may very well not go into Poland next. He may go to one of our other pro-Western friends that isn't in NATO, either because they just didn't join like Finland or haven't yet qualified like Moldova. And, we have to ask exactly how far along do we want to let him get before we say too much has happened. And unfortunately, and this is the thing I addressed to my piece in Open for Business, it's really kind of easy to start to kind of play this like it is a game and think about it like a sporting event and, oh no, we're losing a little here, we're gaining a little here. But but the the heartbreaking thing is, while we're trying to figure out exactly how far Putin will go and how to contain him, um, people's family members are just dead. And every day there's more of those. And I think that's the the real question is, um, you know, even if we ultimately win, but we wait two years and then have to get involved because Putin's starting to bomb Poland or Finland or wherever, at that point, even if then we say, okay, we're going to do this and we push him back, it doesn't somehow restore the lives that are being lost today. And I think that's a, a, a real challenge. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little frustrated at the way our, our news media is portraying this because they, they have all the dramatic music and they queue up a nice bombing as they go to commercial break and so on. And it really does feel like a movie or some form of entertainment. But if you're actually on the ground in Ukraine right now, it's not entertainment. It's absolute terror. It, it's really not a game. And, and the longer we wait, as you said, the more difficult it's going to be. Uh, th- this is heartbreaking. And the, the choices get tougher and tougher. For our leaders as it goes. Um, just maybe a closing note. I was reading a piece on Finland, actually, not long ago. And I, I guess I just didn't appreciate enough the the post-World War II state of Finland. But to avoid being placed under the Iron Curtain, Finland had to make a lot of compromises with the Soviet Union, including um, having the Finnish secret police closely aligned with the Soviet Union's secret police. And and things of that nature. And I think the other thing we need to be thinking about is, will it get to the point where Ukraine has no choice but to come to a compromise that may allow it some independence, may even be better than 
what it seemed like a few weeks ago, but still is really, really awful and takes decades to repair. And and I think that's a, a question, especially given that we actually did sign the Budapest Memorandum promising to protect Ukraine's sovereignty. The United States did, the United Kingdom did. You know, so it's not just us wanting to be the world police, but what we're doing now has real questions for not just, you know, next week or next year, but for possibly generations and, and how it will play out. And, um, you know, there aren't any good answers, but it's certainly worth praying for. And I, I, my prayer is that next time we have a Zippy episode, we're talking about a post-analysis uh, of this because Russia's conceded and backed off and at least there isn't any more destruction and there's nothing bad that comes to the Ukrainians, but, but um, there's still a lot that could go terribly wrong. I hope for that as well. Well, a few months ago, Jason, you wrote on Open for Business about disability and identity, and it was a really, really helpful piece, I think. I hope all of our listeners will go over to Open for Business if they haven't already and read that piece. We'll have it in the show notes. But maybe you'd like to walk us through it a little bit. Well, I'll probably be talking about things that I didn't actually say in the piece uh, because I'm weird like that, and I can never stay on topic. But um, this this is a piece about just about living with a disability and and confronting the the challenges of doing that. Not only the physical challenges, but the social challenges. The a lot of the activists and and academics who've been studying this say that there's there's kind of two models of disability. Right there's the the medical model which deals with the disability itself and seeking to cure it to be more able than we are presently, and then the social model says that we're affected more um, by the social isolation of having a disability than we are by uh, our diagnoses. And so I was just considering that from my own perspective and how the Americans with Disabilities Act is now 32 years old um, and some of the things that were promised and hoped for and especially access to employment just are not where they need to be um, and that most of us uh, with a diagnosis under the Americans with Disabilities Act don't work or if we do work uh, there's some wage discrimination for those with Down syndrome, uh, and that should not be happening. In sheltered wor- workshops, we pay people less than minimum wage because we we give ourselves a pass. You know, people start these sheltered workshops and they think they're being generous, you know, incorporating people into the community. Well, they're just people, you know, even if they have intellectual disabilities in that, in that case. Um, they're just people, and if they do work, they deserve to be paid like everyone else is paid. So uh, access to employment, social isolation, just related to people's discomfort, uh, these are different challenges uh, that persons with disabilities face, and we have a lot we have a lot to work on and think about. And and again, I mentioned that in in, in private settings. Uh, private associations and um, and companies are not covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act. So a lot of times you're just, uh, if you work in a church or you want to work in a church, uh, you're kind of uh, relying on that generosity, which <laughs> may not necessarily be there. And I think if we just get more comfortable knowing people with disabilities and knowing their lives, then it becomes more normal for people and they don't they don't unintentionally discriminate because they're uncomfortable it feels like maybe there's a couple of different um, different situations that need to be wrestled with you you raise the point of of sh- of those sheltered workshops for people for example who have a mental disability what would you see i guess this is my question and I, I wrestle with it because I, i'm very sympathetic to what you're saying what what is the right way to approach that? For example, you have some of those. I mean, some of those clearly just taking advantage of people that that clearly are providing equal work. What what do you do in some of those cases though, where they're providing opportunities for some meaningful work to someone who 
maybe can't produce, say, 7 or 10 or $15 an hour's worth of work, um, but they can do something. And I guess that's the one thing that, that kind of runs through my head. How do you make sure that you don't create a situation where more more of those folks end up unemployed? Because if they have to be provided with a standard minimum wage, but they can't actually output a standard minimum wage, what's the workable model, I guess? Do you, do you have thoughts on that? Well, uh, I didn't. Um, I didn't think about addressing that particular situation. That may be um, that may be a debatable one. Um, if there's no standard output, you know, that's being offered, but when when poverty is sort of a requirement for some of the assistance programs that are offered for the disabled, and I did bring this up in the piece, where yes. you you have to. You have to like self-enforce poverty. You you can't make income because if you make income, then you'll lose uh, certain benefits. Um, and there are friends of mine who uh, they want to get married, but if they get married, they'll lose some of those same benefits. And it's like, well, you know, where does that leave us? If we if we can't marry, then we we're not living lives like other people live. And how does that interface with the church and with um, the command with how we're supposed to live in chastity? Uh, so it brings up all sort of issues uh, that we need to deal with. And it'll be for another piece, probably. You, you did bring that up in, in your, your piece about some of these policies we have. And it, it reminds me, one of my all-time favorite books is Economics in One Lesson from Henry Hazlitt. And... He talks, I believe he originally authored it. I had the second edition. I, I think this was originally authored um, maybe even during the Roosevelt administration. And he talked about the challenges as New Deal policies were being implemented in not discouraging work. And, of course, that's been the ongoing discussion in later years with with the um, war on poverty and, and so on. We, we've created these weird policies that seem to disincentivize the very things we want to do. And and I, I I was really struck by that part of your piece, that how do we reach out to people and help them? I mean, obviously, you mentioned being disabled is expensive. And so you you look at that, and it seems like a perfectly good thing. And it is a good thing if we have government assistance, if, if there's certain equipment needs or medical needs or whatever. I, I think most people would support that. But how do we set aside some of these these income barriers where we're actually discouraging people from getting to contribute in society in the ways that they they want to and feel called to and are able to. And I appreciate you bringing that up because I, I feel like that's a, a huge problem. We should never be incentivizing people not to get married or or not to have a job if they're able to and want to. I mean, that, that shouldn't be something we do and say, well, you're not going to be able to afford these things that you must have if you if you contribute to society through a paid position. So don't, don't, you know, just stay poor. I mean, that, that just seems completely counterintuitive to what everyone would say we want to accomplish. Right. I, I was kind of, I had my right wing self and my left left wing self both reflected in the, in the piece there. Uh, because, you know, if you're, di- if you're disincentivizing work, if you're punishing wealth creation, that, then you're just doing it wrong. Even if you even if you think the government has a role uh, paying for certain things and helping with certain things, and I will say really quickly that um, the the government involvement in medical devices like wheelchairs and walkers and things that people I know use um, is that there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of quality control because there's not a lot of competition. So we have, it it seems like we have the worst stuff that always breaks down. The service is slow. Um, And my friend was going, my friend's a business person. He's like, any other business, nobody would put up with this. But we have to put up with bad service, bad products, bad bad everything. Um, Partly, no offense, because the government is involved and maybe involved in a particular way that's less helpful. Whereas, you know, direct, direct financial assistance to the people 
might be better than uh, than Medicare, Medicaid, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So those are things to think about. We can't answer that all at one time. You raise the point about life in the church and how we wrestle as Christians with disability. And yeah, I appreciate you asking about that, Tim. Um, there's an image that we have from early in the Gospels when Jesus was about to be born. It says that there was no room for them in the inn. Our Lord was born in a manger, and I think for me, uh, there being no room in the inn is is an image of not quite quite fitting in. And so, can can we make room in the inn? Can we make room in the church uh, for people like me? Uh, and then another aspect is I was asked to look at a document governing um, governing the administration of sacraments. Uh, sacramental access for the disabled. Um, and so I was able to give some advice and did I notice anything in there that was, that was really offensive um, or just was a little insensitive to a particular situation or other. And I think the fact that people are asking is a good thing, you know, because they're starting to, uh, to explore that sensitivity and, and not just, not for the sake of conflict, but for the sake of communion together as a people, you know, because there's a lot of there's a lot of activism, as you know, Tim, that takes place in society. And its only end is is separation and conflict. So I didn't want to I didn't I don't want to be a part of anything that is that that is just unremitting conflict between able bodied and disabled. Yes, but just so that we can come together as one people and worship together the one God in three persons as one people. Um, and But another aspect of that that I noticed is when I go to church and I look around, uh, if, I, if I were able to encourage most of the people that live in my building to go to church with me, they wouldn't have anywhere to sit. A lot of the people have mobility devices, and I would and I and I would challenge pastors with this: if somebody started bringing friends, if I brought five friends, or let's say I brought a bunch of friends, like twenty friends, there'd be no way for us to worship comfortably because there's one spot, you know, where I sit, and it's cleared out. There's maybe room for one more wheelchair. If somebody brought a scooter or a wheelchair or maybe a five people did, you know, and, and what is the access? If you have a, if you have a beginner's class or, you know, a, a new Christian's class, a baptism class, and you had a whole bunch of uh, disabled people show up or you had a blind person or something like that, would you even be ready to receive them? Uh, and the thing is, what's challenging about that is Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are always ready to receive those people. So we need to be ready to receive those people. They don't need to be on the margins. And they need to hear the gospel too. Um, so that's that's a big thing that I'm passionate about, not just employment, not just uh, being connected socially in the community, but supernaturally. The most important yes. thing uh, that you and I share together is our faith in Christ. And what if somebody was disabled, yes. they wanted to come to Christ, what are you going to do? You know? Yeah. You, you raised something that's really been sort of on my mind uh, in recent times. The the place where, where my church will be meeting in person shortly and where our collaborative ministry faith tree has met, it was a building built long before the ADA and it, it's not, in any way uh, particularly friendly to access uh, for wheelchairs and such. And it bothers me. And it's one of those things that's the only place we can afford right now. But um, it definitely seems like the sort of thing that we need to find a solution to it because the last thing you want is someone who would like to come and the stairs into the building or that sort of thing prevent them from actually hearing the gospel or being discipled or, or what have you. And, and what we need to work towards now, a lot of people are saying this is so-called universal design because it's very expensive 
to add like an external ramp if somebody needs a ramp for a mobility device. Um, but if you de designed it in such a way that people of all different abilities can use it, then it's just normal. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, and there's no attention drawn to it either. And some people are sensitive about that. You know, if we could, if we could design, I've seen some very innovative staircases with like ramps that are like in the grooves of the staircase. So if you want to go up the stairs, you can go that way, but uh, just to the left of it, you can take a ramp that does the same thing. And that's really cool stuff. So we're using the same doors. We're, we're using the same access points. Um, and that testifies, testifies even closer that we want to be one community and one people. Yes. Uh, and not different people. So that that was a lot from my article, not just uh, employment, not just the social aspect, which we do need to work on. Maybe in later shows I'll talk about uh, able discomfort. But I was thinking more like, hey, in the supernatural things, in the things that pertain to Christ, are we ready to go if a whole bunch of people wanted to hear the message of the gospel? Are we ready to receive them? even if they are differently abled. So. Well, I, I'm just thankful for you bringing this up, and I, I, I hope we can come back to here on Zippy and, and keep talking about different ways that we can process this as a, a, a society together and, and do a better job. need to take a moment to recognize the second sponsor of our show today, which is faithtree.com grow. Faithtree grow is a place where throughout the week you can get encouragement from God's word from different pastors and lay people around the area, reflecting on the truth of God's word and applying it to our lives. And in particular right now, Jason, you're involved in, in part of what we're doing there in something that's been really fun so far this year, which is songs for our temple. Yeah, I think it's just great to get into God's Word um, and to do it with friends and neighbors who also love God's Word and who want to apply it to their lives. And again, the book of Psalms is is that book of prayer. That's not all it is, but they they were the songs of Israel that they would pray in public worship um, and sing in public worship. So... Um, we know that there's always something for us there, and hopefully we can find it together and then apply it to our lives and connect it to the rest of the Bible. I encourage our listeners, if you haven't already or you haven't been there in a while, check out grow.faithtree.com. That's grow.faithtree.com. Throughout the week, you can... Comrade, you mentioned in, in our little sponsorship block there about how good it is to dig into God's Word and experience His love, and, and that's really where we wanted to wrap up the show today with this world that we're in and all the uncertainty, to, to think about what we find out about God's love in our Savior, and maybe you'd like to just kind of get started on that. I think one of the interesting chunks of a passage is the upper room discourse in John's Gospel from John 13 through John 17. Um, and I wanted to look at a particular chunk of that. So we'll be in John 14. We'll go to John 14 and, and where Jesus starts to tell the apostles about the Holy Spirit because um, he's going to go away. And then obviously the guys, the apostles, they're worried. They're worried that they're going to be left alone. And how emotional this must be. They're alone in the upper room with Jesus, and with the Virgin Mary, who I don't think it's um, explicitly stated anywhere in John's Gospel, but she is there. Um, and so he's alone there with them, and he says, I'm going away, um, but we'll pick it up in verse 18 uh, of John 14. I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You will live also. Verse 20. In that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. He who has the commandments and keeps them, he, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. 
and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Um, and we can go back a few verses earlier. Uh, we can go back to 15 a little bit. Let me do that. Um, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 16, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So, um, as we said, Christ is going to go away. He's got to go to the cross, and he's he's going to die. And Spoiler alert. He's going to die, and then he's going to raise again. And then he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And see, the Holy Spirit is the counselor, but also the teacher. Um, and, and later on, Jesus is going to say, uh, the Spirit will take from the things that belong to me and declare them to you. So even today, we're, we're reliant on the Holy Spirit um, as, if, as if Jesus was physically, bodily present with us through the Holy Spirit. In a sense, he is, because everything that Christ would teach us, the Holy Spirit is there to teach us. Uh, so we are not left as orphans. We're not left alone. This is not, in John 14, this is not simply a sad moment that we're going through, but this is uh, God fulfilling his promises to us in Christ and through the Holy Spirit. So again, we can think of the Trinity. We can know the Trinity is working together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to bring us to God and give us everything we need. And I think that's so encouraging to know in these dark times. Uh, a lot of the darkness we've been talking about today on today's, sh uh, today's show. So to know the Holy Spirit is with us and, and he will fulfill the promises that Christ made to us. It's quite an encouragement. And I just encourage you to stay in the word and stay close to the Holy Spirit and, and talk to him and open, open yourselves to him. And we'll all try to do that as a group, him and I and all the listeners. Let's, let's do that. And yes, yeah, that's such a good word. Um, we, we run a risk, I think, at times of, of viewing God's word as something that talks about a lot of people in the past. And maybe in an intellectual sense, we think, well, we know that Jesus rose from the grave, so he's not in the past per se. But the thing that is so hopeful if we really grasp onto what Jesus is talking about here with the Holy Spirit is the fact that it reminds us that the same Spirit, that he was not only with the disciples after Jesus ascended, but he's with us today. And so when we read about these things, when we read about God's Spirit working in people, this is the same event that's still happening. And I think sometimes we, we lose sight of that, but there there's a, a good reason why... Peter, uh, uh, at Pentecost, when he's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit and explaining how suddenly the disciples could talk in different languages and this, this whole spectacular thing that happens, he relates what's happening to the last days because something profoundly different changes in the world. Uh, the Holy Spirit isn't new. He's God. He's been there for all eternity. And yet, with this turning point and this gift of the Spirit, suddenly every person who follows the Lord has the same access to that presence of God. And what a beautiful thing that is. And I, I feel like, especially right now in such an uncertain time, we all need to be reminded God isn't simply out there someplace. God isn't simply someone who, who has acted 2,000 years ago and the years before that, but, but God is here with us right now. And that same promise not to leave us as orphans that Jesus gives to the disciples, it's the promise that God gives us today. And, you know, it's no coincidence that that we have the language of adoption woven throughout the New Testament of God adopting us into his family, but he's not some kind of absentee adopter uh, where he adopts us but leaves us alone. He He is right there in us. And what a wonderful thing that is for us as we trust in Jesus. And it, it, for those who, who haven't, what a wonderful promise if you simply 
confess Jesus as Lord and repent of your, your sins and follow him, that it's not just, okay, now I'm going to do some stuff, but the God of the universe actually dwells in us. I mean, it's mind-boggling, but wonderful, and it's comforting, especially in an uncertain time. Yeah, maybe next week we can go forward and, and talk about the divine indwelling, but like you said, God is trying to reach each one of us. I think back to um, John 11, the second half of that chapter, and uh, and Mary says to Jesus, the sister of Martha, uh, Mary says, well, if you hadn't been here, uh, or or if you'd come earlier, my brother would still be alive. I paraphrase that a little bit. And, and Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he goes on to raise Lazarus from the dead. Uh, but, but he's here and he's, he's with us and he knows us by name. She knew him when he called her name. And when we believe in him, he calls us by name. And when we receive him, we are called by name. It says over in Romans, I'm going to take us all over the Bible today because that's just what I do. But it says over in Romans, the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Um, and, and he intercedes for us there in that same verse. He intercedes with groanings that are beyond understanding. So when we don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit knows and so coming to faith um, is a gift of the Holy Spirit and exercising faith and exercising trust and, and loving God. These are all uh, gifts of the Spirit that he's given us. And we can drink fully of him and thereby also love Christ who, who gave him to us in the Father's will. So I've said a lot. We've said a ton. Maybe that's good to leave it there, not to overload you, but God is with you and for you. Amen. And he loves you. Well, what a wonderful place to end this episode of Zippy. I always am sad to get to the end because it's great talking about the news, culture, and things that matter to our listeners with you, comrade, but certainly a wonderful place to end it. And as we end, just a reminder to our listeners, if you haven't already, please do subscribe to Zippy the Wonder Snail on your favorite podcasting app or store, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts, you should subscribe to Zippy the Wonder Snail, and you can also check out our archive at zippythewondersnail.com. We can't wait to join you again. We will be back and dig into more of the news and culture that matter to you. Until next time, 